Well, amen. How are you guys doing this morning? Those of you that are here in person and joining us online, I am so grateful that you guys are here and here to hear the word of God, to give your worship, and to uh, basically proclaim to the world the, the awesomeness of Jesus Christ. That's what we're here to do. And so if you came here for any other reason, I'm sorry, you're going you're, you're gonna to be disappointed because that is what we are here to do. Sunday is for worship only. Amen. So uh, we are in part five of our Revelation series. We're, we are in the, we're going to bring it to the lowest point possible. God, this is God's last ditch effort to call humanity to him right before the prophesied return of Christ, which is the next chapter. And so today we're in Revelation 15, 16, just call it round three. And main thing is God gives one last chance for people to turn to him. Um, several years ago, there was a show called The Biggest Loser. Anybody watch The Biggest Loser? Um, uh, we did, and it was about overweight and obese people that, that had a challenge to lose weight. They, they would work out, they would learn new eating habits and, and everything like that, and my family would watch it religiously. We'd eat ice cream and watch these people try to lose weight. You know, we, we always did that. And so uh, they, they, the, right before the weigh-ins, they would have what's called a last chance workout where they try to burn off as much weight as they possibly could. Last chance workout because if they, uh, they were voted off, they would, they would go home. So this is the last chance workout right here. This is an incredibly significant part of the book of Revelation. It is the third and final round of God's wrath. He brings humanity within one step of hell itself. All right? Uh, it's humanity's last chance. This is it. Time's up. No more do-overs. No more extensions, no more stays of executions. It's time for round three, which the Bible describes as the bowl judgments. Now, if this is your first time here, just now joining us online, um, the round one was known as the seal judgments. All right, round two were the trumpet judgments. Interestingly enough, the thing that really marked the first two rounds of judgments, the seal and the trumpet judgments, was a massive amount of death. In, uh, in the seal judgments, one-fourth of humanity was killed in an instant. In the trumpet judgments, one-third of the remaining uh, uh, were, were killed. So assuming an earth population of about 7 billion people, 1.75 bil billion people die during the seal judgments, and another one point, uh, leaving 5.25 billion, and then another 1.73 billion people die during the trumpet judgments, meaning that half the earth's population, 3.5 billion people die in the first two rounds of judgment. We can't even fathom that, you all. 3.5 billion deaths uh, due to war or famine. We, uh, a lot of people think it's a nuclear holocaust, whatever. But round three of the bold judgments is different. It does not seem to indicate worldwide carnage like the first two rounds. All right? Instead, the bold judgments uh, are marked by suffering and torment, but not death. It, it's, it's, very, it's a different thing. God keeps people alive uh, during this round to try to bring them to repentance. This is the, the difference. Okay, so Revelation 15, 7 through 8 says this, Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke and the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. If you guys remember, the number seven is the Jewish word, uh, number of completion. So there are seven bowl judgments, seven plagues that God sends. The first one, the first one is a plague of sores. 
right? Uh, uh, Revelation 16, 2. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. All right, the first of the bowl judgments is a, like a smart bomb. It's not an overarching thing. It is targeted to people who, if you guys were here last week, we talked about the mark of the beast, uh, who took the mark of the beast, all right? Uh, the mark of the beast, for those of you I don't know, it is a, it is a mark you know, on the right hand <clears throat> or the forehead, either a tattoo or a microchip or a QR code or something like that, that will allow you to buy and sell and participate in the economy, allow you to go to the grocery store, allow you to have a job, etc. We talked about that last week. Um, <clears throat> it's an oath of loyalty to the Antichrist who is the leader of a one-world government that will exist in the end times. All right, now, uh, one point that people have asked me is if the church is raptured out before the tribulation, if the, church, if the Christians are taken out, then uh, why does the Bible refer to Christians being there during the tribulation? Uh, well, that's a good question. That's a very good question. Remember, the purpose of the tribulation is to bring people to him. It's not vindictive or, or a punitive. It is, the, it is God's uh, desire to bring people to him. Um, it is to wake people up, to call them to repentance, to bring as many people to salvation as possible. And we all know, because we're stubborn, prideful, rear ends of, of, of creatures, that hard times, rather than good times, awaken our need for God. All right, we all know that. So there'll be many people who turn to Christ during the tribulation. There'll be a massive turning to God because things will be so bad. There will be lukewarm people who were part of churches that just kind of played church and kind of just soccer became more important and baseball became more important and, and, and vacation and sleeping in became more important than, than act, their actual faith and then they'll, they'll, the, the, the Christians will disappear and they will be woken up. They will, be re, they will realize how complacent lukewarm they've been and they will, they will t- return to, to their faith with passion. There will be Muslim and Hindu converts have seen the light there will be people who see the faith of their grandparents and their parents they never really took it for themselves but they knew that and and grandparents and parents are gone and they will be woken up to faith and and while they have repented and turned to faith because they missed the first rapture they will have to endure the tribulation right it's a good idea folks not to miss the rapture you don't want to be here for the tribulation, believe me. So the first bold judgment is a direct judgment on people who have taken the mark of the beast, have been deceived into that. Now, in my community group this week, we were talking about the mark of the beast, and we were talking about what it would look like. Like, how would, how would the Antichrist actually get people to take this thing? What, what, how will it, we be deceived? In our discussion, we came up with a possible way that we package in order to get people to take it. Okay? Remember... People, don't, people have to have a good reason uh, to, to do things. So what, what we kind of came up with was this probably what will happen. This is kind of our surmising. This is not biblical. This is people in the Kibler house coming up with stuff that we think might happen, okay? So I want to distinguish between Scripture and what I'm about to tell you, okay? So, but what we think is maybe there will be an increase in identity theft, Okay, and the mark of the beast will be hailed as a way for your identity never to be stolen. You'll never lose a credit card. No one can steal your identity. Uh, You'll never lose uh, because all of your monetary info will be right there in that mark or on your forehead. 
Okay, uh, maybe um, your, your medical history, it'll be billed as, you know, if you're in a car accident, uh, all they have to do is scan the QR code on your hand or your forehead and, uh, and your name, your identity, your, your address, um, your medical history, your allergies, things that you're allergic to will all pop up and the EMTs can save you quicker. It'll be billed like that, maybe. Or, or number three, maybe it, no need to carry a wall. It'll be a cashless society. You can't be robbed. No one can steal anything from you. All your identity, your credit card info, your bank info will be right there, and no one can steal that from you. Okay, maybe that will be billed like that. Whatever it is, it'll be hailed as good for you, as progress. It'll be a promise of moving forward. It'll be uh, these problems being solved. Oh, it's also an oath of loyalty to a psychopath who's indwelled by Satan himself, and it will sentence you to an eternity in hell, but that won't be said in the commercials. That, that, they'll, they'll leave that out. So his first bold judgment is a plague of painful sores on people who have been deceived by these things into taking the mark, okay? Christians will not experience this, okay? Bowl number two is a plague on the sea. So after plague of bulls, a plague on the sea. Revelation 16.3, a second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead person, and every living thing in the sea died. Now, <clears throat> it's interesting that John writes, the sea became like that blood of a dead person. Now, I've, I'm not a, a detective. I've never worked a crime scene. I don't know what the blood of a dead person looks like, but as a hunter, I know what the blood of a dead animal looks like. Um, uh, it, it is black. It is not red. See, what, what, given blood enough time, the oxygen leaves the blood, and, and it is dark blue or black. And so the sea will turn dark blue or black like the blood of a dead person. It won't be red. It'll be black. Think about that. How devastating this will be for people to depend on fishing for their food supply. <clears throat> and then, imagine the smell. I want you to go there in your mind. All the sea creatures die and float to the surface. We're talking dead fish, whales, dolphins, sharks, all on the surface of the ocean. Can you imagine the smell that that is going to be? All right? Just imagine that. Bowl number three is this, a plague on the fresh water. Verse four, the, the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. So the third bowl is not just on the sea, it's on the fresh water. Now, uh, this parallels a plague that God sent to Egypt during the, during, uh, the time when Israel was in slavery. Uh, the, Nile, the Nile River turned to blood. Okay, this, is, this parallels that. Now, I have a question that I can't find the answer to. As I'm reading this, I'm wondering, how do people survive without water? Uh, human beings can, can only uh, survive a couple days without water. So, so what ha I, 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 I don't know how, they, how that happens. I guess one possible explanation is it still rains and people uh, can, can have fresh water that way. I guess, I don't know. Maybe that's one thing I'm going to have to find out when I get to heaven. I don't really think John understood it either. He just kind of wrote down what he saw. He didn't try to explain it. He didn't give us any commentary. He just wrote down what he saw. So I don't know how that's going to work, but that's a question that I have. Uh, for bold judgment number three. So the first three judgments, plague of sores, plague on the sea, and plague on the fresh water. Things are bad, but as we know, through Revelation, things get progressively worse. Bowl number four is this, is a plague of fire. Uh, Revelation 16, eight through nine. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. Now, I don't know what form this will take. Okay, I'm not uh, some natural phenomenon like a solar flare or something. I'm not an astronomy guy and I can't speak about that. But I do know this, that the sun has episodes from time to time. 
It does. I remember the first cell phone I had. It was a Nokia phone. You guys remember the days when your cell phone, all you could do was call? You couldn't text. You couldn't get online. You couldn't do any. How many of you all remember those days? Okay. My Nokia phone had singular service. Okay. I remember that. But the sun in about 2000 or 2001, I can't remember which one, had a little episode. It had a solar flare, and cell phone service was knocked out for 24 hours. I don't know if anybody remembers that. I, I remember that. Uh, it was either in 2000, 2001. And so we know that the sun has little episodes from time to time, sunspots, solar flares. Now, uh, it may be the sun will have another little episode that will in- intensify the nuclear fusion reactions that are going on in it. I don't know. We do know, like I said, the sun moves in cycles and that those things happen. It could be that God magnifies that into a searing heat wave and it scorches our planet. But the wording here is interesting. I want you to look at the word allowed. The sun was allowed, as if the sun was, has been held back. It's always been capable of this searing, scorching, but it's been, something's been holding it back. All right? it, it could be that the ozone layer is removed supernaturally, uh, or some of the protection that we don't know that we currently have, we don't know, um, that is removed and the sun hits us stronger than we've ever experienced. But, but whatever happened with this massive heat wave, though, people will, be, will be basically be scorched. Um, and there will be other consequences. If you think about this, with this massive heat wave, there will be people getting heat strokes, heat exhaustion, air conditioning units are going to fail. Um, if the ice caps still exist, they will melt, causing coastal uh, cities to flood. Remember, with black water and dead fish. Okay, just imagine that, people. All right, and then this passage points out in response to this that people will curse God. Interesting. It doesn't say that they don't believe in him. They can't curse someone they don't believe in. In other words, all the atheists will be gone. There will be no atheism. People will curse God. They won't curse the flying spaghetti monster because the flying spaghetti monster doesn't exist. They will curse God. That shows what Paul talked about in Romans chapter 1, that people can clearly see God, and therefore we have no excuse for our unbelief. That proves that. However, it says they will curse him and not repent or glorify him. How prideful, people. How stubborn. How arrogant humanity is. After seeing all this, knowing God exists, curse him instead of turning to him to be saved. I just, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, don't be such a fool as I read this. Then bowl number five happens, verse 10 and 11. The, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and they cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. Now, bowl number five is a direct judgment on the Antichrist himself. This also parallels um, uh, one of the plagues that God visited upon Egypt, uh, the plague of darkness, where uh, the, the Egyptians were plunged into darkness, but the place where the Israelites lived, there was light. Okay, uh, the suffering is immense and people gnaw their tongues in agony. Okay, what, what, I want somebody to do this for me. I want you to bite your tongue, like really hard. Bite your tongue like right now. How's it feel? Feel good? All right, that's what these people are doing. And they continue to curse God. Shows us something. The sores from the bold judgments haven't gone away. All right, they're still there. The Bible states again that they refuse to repent. Are you guys sensing a theme here? Refuse to repent. They curse God, refuse to repent. 
John is clear in noticing response of the people to this. And bowl number six, this is interesting. This is the one I believe that has the most prophetic significance for us today. It is the preparation for Armageddon, verse 12 through 16. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and his water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Remember, kings from the east, an army from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs. They go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of the God Almighty. And then, all of a sudden, we hear Jesus Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and shamefully exposed. Verse 16, then they gather the kings together in the place in Hebrew that is called Armageddon. All right, this is the preparation for the final battle between good and evil. Now, so we hear the word Armageddon. Ah, so it isn't just a cheesy Bruce Willis movie where he saves um, uh, you know, the earth from an asteroid. Yes, the word Armageddon is of special significance here. It is a reference to a real location in Israel, in the Jezreel Valley, known as the Megiddo Valley. That's where we get the term Armageddon. It's known as the Megiddo Valley. Now, over the past 4,000 years, the Megiddo Valley has seen, been the place of more wars and conflict than any other place on planet Earth. There have been at least 34 major battles that fought there by ancient Egyptians all the way through the Ottoman Empire and Arab-Israel's wars in the 60s and 70s. Okay? Uh, generals like Gideon, Saul and Jonathan, Roman General Ptolemy, Napoleon Bonaparte, etc., have all fought in the Megiddo Valley. Uh, there's been more fighting and more bloodshed in the Megiddo Valley, it's estimated, than any other spot on the planet Earth. Um, several weeks ago, I mentioned that the Silk Road was being built, was the, the Silk Road, which is an ancient trade route from China, uh, is being rebuilt in 2013. Uh, Communist Party of China announced that they were, re they were remaking the Silk Road. It, it, so uh, they're going to pave it. So you can, a person could walk from China all the way to Europe on this Silk Road. It's a $900 billion infrastructure initiative started by China in 2013. You can see it on NPR, PBS, etc. It's not a big secret. All right? In Revelation 9.16, there's an army that we talked about several weeks ago. An army of 200 million people will march from the east to Israel to the battle of Armageddon, to the Megiddo Valley. Okay? Bible prophecy experts believe this is an army from China. This is only, China is the only nation in the world that can muster an army of 200 million people because of their population. The new Silk Road runs right through the Jezreel Valley, right through the valley of Megiddo. Straight through it. Just another chess piece being moved into place for end-time events to happen. There is a paved road capable of, of moving military equipment and military people on land all the way to the valley of Megiddo. It's known as the new Silk Road. You can Google it. Look it up. After some time later. Don't do it now, but sometime later. So that the preparation for the bat battle of Armageddon happens in and bold judgment number six. All right, number seven. The plague is a plague of earthquakes. 
Revelation 16, 17 through 21, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and severe, earth, and severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind began on earth, so tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the Great, which is the one world government, and gave her the cup of, uh, filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains Mountains could not be found from the sky. Huge hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell on people, and they cursed God on account of the plague and hail because the plague was so terrible. So with this judgment, the wrath of God is finished. It's over. There is no more wrath of God. Uh, the angel proclaims it is finished. These are the same words that Jesus spoke on the cross when he, when, when, when he died. He said, it is finished. The prophetic significance here is this. Jesus said it is finished while on the cross because he had fully taken the sins of humanity onto his body, onto him. He was the object of God's wrath. He took the punishment of sin, all your sin, past, present, future, every sin you have committed, every sin you will commit. He took on himself, drawing sin of the world to him like a magnet draws iron filings to itself. And he was the subject and the object of God's wrath. And when that wrath was satisfied, he said, it is finished. God's wrath is done. He experienced it so you and I wouldn't have to. That's the significance of the words, it is finished. And this situation God's wrath, the, the, the people who did not accept Christ, the people who, whose sins were not taken because of their disobedience, their pride, they have experienced the full part of God's wrath. And so the two times, the words, it is finished, when Jesus took the wrath and then when the people took the wrath. If Jesus doesn't take the wrath of God for you, you experience it for yourself. That is the significance of it is finished. Right? That's why the angel said it's finished. The people who have rejected God have now experienced full wrath of God that they are capable of experiencing while alive. The earthquake will split Jerusalem into three parts and large hailstones fall on the earth. So people predictably, this isn't even, we don't, we don't even, this isn't even news anymore, refuse to repent. They curse God again, acknowledging him, believing in him, but not repenting or surrendering to him. See, the people in the end time believe in God doesn't sound like there are any atheists in the end times. And here's a note that I want you guys to remember. This passage renders the phrase, I believe in God, utterly meaningless. It always has been meaningless. But now we see it for what it is. There'll be all kinds of belief in God in the end times. Yet still aren't saved. Because the belief didn't lead them to surrender to Christ. See, their belief wasn't one of loving God, of seeing and savoring his lordship, desiring his salvation, acknowledging our sin and rebellion and repenting of it. That's not what their belief was. Their belief wasn't one of loving God. See, when, when, when someone tells me they believe in God, it really doesn't mean anything, and we see that here. The question isn't, do you believe in God? The question is, do you love God? with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do you, have you surrendered to him and his ways? Do, do, have you brought your heart to such a humble point that you can say, God, your ways are better 
my ways. I don't, I, I can't, I don't approach you with any conditions, any terms, any, any uh, uh, clauses. I just simply unconditional surrender. Have your way because your ways are better. You are better. You're better. Are you a person who cherishes God with him as your number one priority? See, guys, there's a huge difference between believing in God and loving God. The people in the end times will believe in God, believe me. They won't love him. Are there are people in here, are there people in here today and joining us online who believe in God but don't love him? Yeah, yeah, there are. And that's not a shot against Catalyst, that's every church. That's why God gave us the first three chapters of Revelation call the church to wake up because of what we see here there'll be scores of people who believe in God but don't love him there are people present in this room who that describes people joining us online that describes the people that are sleeping in this morning that aren't here this morning that describes oh they believe they don't love and so the four things we can learn from revelation just kind of a synopsis because this is the end part of God's wrath. There's nothing but good news from this point forward. Nothing but, the, but this is an end of, of, of a section of history. These are the four things that looking back over the last 15, 16 chapters, I think we can learn. Number one is this, that God doesn't take sin lightly. Don't mistake God's patience or leniency. Okay, Romans 2, 5, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. I am, I, I'm, the, I'm the kind of person, I'm not smart enough, really. I, 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 don't, I don't see in the future very well, so if I do something and there's no consequence for it, I, I kind of assume it's okay, you know? So do you. That's why when you go home today, a lot of you aren't gonna drive the speed limit. We'll drive five or seven over, 10, 15 over, because you did it and nothing happened, right? Someone's been driving for 30 years and it's not happened yet. And so we think it's okay. And that is the way so many of us look at God. Okay, I've done this and I, and, and I, haven't, I haven't had a plague of boils yet. I haven't, uh, you know, had the sea turn to blood yet. I haven't done, I haven't, so I guess it's just okay. God understands, right? Well, one thing we learn from here is that God doesn't take sin lightly. His patience is not leniency because here humanity begins to ex actually experience the terrible consequences of trespassing on God's glory. So don't mistake God's patience for leniency. Don't be like me and so many other people that just kind of take advantage of God's grace. How many of us in here, if we had to have a show of hands, don't raise your hands, but are guilty of taking advantage of God's grace and patience? We're doing things we know are wrong, but hey, we can depend on the God of great, God's grace, right? Well, the revelation of Jesus Christ shows us what God actually thinks about those things. So that's the first thing we can learn from revelation. That God doesn't take sin lightly. That which sent his son to the cross, he does not take lightly. 
and we shouldn't either. The second thing that we learn from Revelation, and this is something that just means so much to me, is that God gives us a glimpse of what his absence looks like. In Revelation 16, we, we, we see everything where God just kind of steps back and he allows evil to have free reign. See, people have asked me what I think hell is like. And I'd say, you're a pastor. What do you think hell is actually like? Is it really like a, you know, Satan with a little pitchfork and red tights going around jabbing people? Is that what it is? Well, Heaven is the place in the Bible where things are as God wills them to be. There, nothing in heaven will happen apart from the will of God. The, the, however God wants you to be and me to be, that's what heaven will be like, where things are as God wills. 100% of the time, 365, 24-7, exactly, okay? So hell, we can assume, is the opposite, where nothing is as God wants them to be. It is a place where evil has free reign to do to you and to me and to what, what, whoever is there anything they want. No one on earth has ever experienced hell. No one. Even the, We've never experienced a place where evil's had free reign because God is part of this world. Even the awful place of earth, evil is limited. One of the most evil times, an evil place in history was Cambodia in the 1970s. The Khmer Rouge government uh, basically killed people at random. They were, they were called the killing fields of Cambodia. 1.7 million people were killed in like a six-month period. I mean, the, the bodies must have been stacked up. But here's the thing. Even with the killing fields of Cambodia in the 70s, the evil leaders still had to spend one-third of their lives asleep. They weren't able to do so. They had to sleep. They were limited in the technology to, to, to however many bullets they had, whatever they were capable, they were limited in their ability to inflict damage and evil. But hell is a place where Satan doesn't sleep, where he has free reign to do whatever he wants to do all day long. There is no technological limitation. There is no time limit on what he can do. It is the complete absence of anything good, joyful, cheerful, or hopeful. God is completely withdrawn from hell. Therefore, anything that springs from him has gone to friendship or hope or anything or rest. In Revelation, God gives us a glimpse of what that is like, what our future is without him. Right? What it looks like when, he's no lo- when he no longer restrains evil, when he, when he is no longer there. The untold death, the suffering, the scorching of the sun, the stench of death and sea life, you know, turn black uh, like the blood of a dead person. That's what God lets us see because that is all hell will be with no limits. Let's us see what life would be without him. In the trumpet judgments, people are tormented by locust-like creatures that sting like scorpions. Well, those... Locust-like creatures will have free reign. There'll be be nothing stopping them. The Bible says the people who are stung will long to die, but they won't be able to, and that is what hell will be. We realize that God's presence is something we kind of didn't really understand, didn't really kind of assumed, kind of took for granted because we never lived without it. We didn't realize that God's presence was here. We didn't realize that evil didn't have free reign. We didn't realize that God's presence was the reason we have love, the reason we have joy, 
The reason we have hope, the reason we can get together and, and even have Christmas and, and, and we can actually have friendship, we can laugh, all those things are because God's part of this world. When God withdraws, all that stuff goes with him too. And we get to see what hell would really be like. It makes us appreciate and cherish and love God even more because what we see in this is what life is like without him. He loves us enough to let us see what our future would be like without him. That's the second thing we can learn from Revelation. Third thing that we learn from Revelation is this, is God desires all to repent and be saved. Acts 3.19, Paul's message 2,000 years ago, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Times of refreshing. He wants you not only to be saved eternally, he wants you to have your sins cleansed so that times of refreshing may come, so that you will be encouraged, so you will not be discouraged, so you will have hope and a future and a purpose. That's what he wants. God's call for every person to repent and be saved, and that's why he gives the earth the tribulation. We see a limited glimpse, like I said, of what it looks like when evil has free reign and God leaves the scene. Now, I'm a father of three. Actually, I'm a father of four. I get to raise three. One's already in heaven. And I, my wife and I have already taught two of our kids how to drive. Now, I'm looking at teaching the third one pretty soon. Now, for you parents who have taught kids how to drive and then turn them loose on the streets, you know how stressful that is. It's very stressful. Why is it stressful? Well, because we know what can happen. I remember in high school, <clears throat> one class, uh, we had a Kentucky State Trooper come to our school, and he had, uh, he had a VCR tape. And you guys remember how cool it was when you walked in the class and the TV cart was there? All of a sudden you knew class was going to be great. Well, there's a TV cart with a VCR. Yeah. And he had a VHS tape. We knew it was going to be great. He had all these displays. And what it was, it was a drunk driving presentation. And all of his displays were pictures taken from actual drunk driving car scenes. Cars wrapped around trees. Body parts laying in the street, hands, fingers. There was a, I will never, I'll never forget a picture of a face smashed beyond recognition. And he, he showed us videos of crimes, of, of car crash scenes, drunk driving scenes. And then he told us stories of wrecks that he had worked. He'd come up and, and, and seen teenagers like us, dead, separating bodies from twisted wreckage. His presentation wasn't to glorify the wreck. The presentation, it was a sober teaching of truth, of what can happen when you drink and drive. This is what happens when you, drink, when you drive badly. Here's your future if you don't take driving seriously, he was telling us. And his purpose was for us to know the truth and modify our behavior accordingly. Now, same is true of God here. He shows us what our future is like without him. And he shows us the truth so that we will repent and turn to him. Now, how foolish would we have been as high school students? How foolish would we have been if we'd have seen those pictures, heard the stories, watched the videos, and gone out and drunk drive, and, and drive drunk? How foolish would we have been knowing the truth, knowing what happens, yet doing it anyway? How foolish. Same is true here. How foolish are you, unbeliever in Christ, to know the truth, to know what's happening, to know what your future is, and still reject him, still walk away from him. How foolish. I'm asking you. 
Scripture tells us to count the cost of becoming a believer. I'm asking you this morning to count the cost of being a non-believer. Look at what Revelation says. Look at what God is showing us, the truth of Scripture. Look at that. Are you so foolish? That's the question. Do you see your future? And that brings me to the fourth point, that there will be many who will go to hell by their own choice. You read the book of Revelation, and... I see people choosing hell. Not God sending them there, but people choosing hell of their own free will. Matthew 7, 13 through 14, Jesus said this, says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. And this is the part I just don't understand, you guys. You can try to explain it to me for a million years. It's kind of like explaining calculus to a monkey. I, I just won't get it. I will not get it. The running theme through Revelation is a constant statement that people refuse to repent. People will literally choose hell for themselves. And what we see in Revelation is the power of pride. Pride. How prideful, how arrogant humanity truly is. Revelation shows us that. People would rather experience all the hell of the tribulation and eternity in hell rather than submit to God and receive his grace. That's all it is. It's pride. Somebody says, no one would choose hell, given the choice between heaven and hell. That's crazy. But we see it right here. People will curse God, curse his name, but won't repent. Only those who are repented, surrendered, approaching God without conditions, qualifications, etc., are given eternal life. Unconditional surrender to God. So if you have never unconditionally surrendered to God, if you've never done that, I'm asking you to right now. I'm actually begging you to do it right now because of what the future shows us. My prayer is that every person in here and joining us online will repent and turn to God, allowing Christ to cleanse you of your sins, past, present, and future. It's only your pride is stopping you. People say, well, I have all these objections. No, you don't. It's always your pride. It's always been pride. From the beginning of of humanity to now, it's always been pride that has stopped people from coming to Christ, and that's it. You can, you can wash it up, you can dress it up, and the intellectual-sounding arguments, at the end of the day, all it is is pride. And that has what been our downfall from the very beginning. What a terrible cost people will pay simply because they can't let go of their pride. Knowing the truth, knowing the future, and still not letting go of it. When God says it is finished, he closes that chapter of life, and he opens a new one which is the prophesied return of Christ. Which happens next. These events have been fulfilled. God's wrath has been finished. And now Jesus Christ, the Lion of Judah, the King of Kings, and Lord of Lords is set to return. He arrived first time as a baby. And he's arriving the second time very, very differently. He's arrived Returning as a warrior, king, riding a white horse, Bible says, carrying a drawn sword with his robe dipped in blood. And he shall reign forever and ever. And that's what happens next. I want to invite the band to come on up. And I'm asking you today, if you have not let go of your pride, 
if you're using smoke screens, if you're using all these high-sounding arguments to, well, I'm just not sure about this, and it, it's pride. It's the only reason you're not coming to Christ today, why, why not submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's it. It's just pride. I'm asking you to lay it down today, those of you that are joining us online, in person. Let's repent. Let's not be such fools. We know the future. God has showed us what it is. We don't want to be here for it. And Jesus is offering eternal life. All you have to do is confess him as Lord and Savior, be baptized, and allow him to infuse you with new life here on this earth and life to come. Um, if you need to make that decision, I'm going to ask you to come find me. I'm not asking you to, to walk up here or anything like that. I'm just going to ask you to come find me because I want to talk I don't want this to be an emotional decision. I want this to be thought through. I want you to count the cost. I want to just counsel with you and disciple with you and see if this is what you are ready to do. I'm tired of emotional decisions that are great and then in a week they don't mean anything. I want to count the cost with you. I want to talk you through scripture. So if you need to become a Christian today, I want you to find me after the service. I'd love to talk with you. Um, that is my offer. As your pastor and friend, because I love you, and I don't want anyone in this room to perish, but all to come to eternal life.